0: Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 253 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, Jimmy will be answering listeners' weird questions. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey,
1: Jimmy. Howdy, Dom.
0: Folks, we usually bring you a special Weird Questions episodes on any fifth Friday of the month, but since the most recent fifth Friday was last week, was also our April Fool's episode, we're bringing you another episode of Weird Questions with Jimmy and Cy Hillett of Catholic Answers Live this week. Jimmy, what weird questions are you answering
1: this time? We're going to be talking about Are there conditions in which the Eucharist would display characteristics of a human being, that is, a rational animal? Does time travel interfere with God's plan? Would saving someone in the past create a new timeline in which the person had a new soul? Could someone on a planet 2,000 light years away use a sufficiently powerful telescope to watch Jesus walking and teaching? Will the answers to every curiosity we have be available to us in heaven? What do I think of the origin of coal and the Great Flood? Is it okay to watch ghost hunting shows for entertainment? What would have to be changed in the apocalyptic left behind series to bring it in line with Catholic teaching? If you become a vampire, could you commit suicide to protect others and how long Or how would the liturgical calendars of planets with longer or shorter years work? Those are indeed
0: some interesting questions, so let's listen to your answers. Thank you. I'm Cy Kelly, your host, enjoying uh, the, weir- the music,
2: the special music we have for Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken. That signals that the fun is about to start. Well, let's go to the questions. Okay. These are weird. These are weird questions for Jimmy. He loves some weird questions. So much so that whenever, I think I've told you this before, whenever we get a really weird question mm-hmm. and someone else is on, they'll be, they always say, oh, that's a Jimmy Aiken question. Oh, so okay. So you, you have a rep. AD asks this, if a human is a rational animal... Yes. That is to say that the natural tendency to grow, eat, feel, see, will, and reason, uh, uh, it has those. Mm -hmm. Then would the consecrated Eucharist have these innate tendencies as well? Are there any conditions under which the Eucharist can do even one of these things mentioned, let alone all of them?
1: So the answer is that Jesus is a a man, he has a complete human nature, he's also God, but he's fully human, fully divine, so he has, uh, he fits the definition in his human nature of a rational animal, and he has all those tendencies. The Eucharist is a manifestation of Jesus, but you can't reason from the, you can't reason across categories in the same way. For example, I'm also a rational animal. Yeah, but um, if I'm manifesting in some way, let's say I'm on Facebook, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean you know with a live streaming. It doesn't mean that my image has all of the same properties that I have. Right. And so if you conceptualize the Eucharist as a manifestation of Jesus, you're not going to find the host and the accidents there doing the things that Jesus would do in his in his physical body. So Jesus in his physical body might raise his hand, but he's not present in the Eucharist in such a way that his body is distributed in the same way that it is uh, in in heaven. And theologians refer to the type of presence that he has as definitive presence in the Eucharist, which means that he's there and he fills the Eucharist in the same way that uh, our souls fill our bodies. They're not located in just one part of the body. And so if Jesus raises his hand in heaven that's not going to result in any outward change in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. So you could conceptualize it different ways, but fundamentally we have two different aspects going on here. The first is the reality, which is Jesus, and which is Jesus' body, blood, soul, and divinity. And that's present in heaven in a way that could, you know, he could raise his hand or blink his eyes or do any of these other things. But then we have the perceptible accidents or species of bread and wine that remain, and those are not affected by whatever Jesus may do with his body in heaven. Uh, A.D., thank you very, very much uh, for that question. Uh,
2: Next, we go to uh, Michael. On the most recent episode of Weird Questions, several questions came up that led to alternative timelines. This raised a couple of questions for me. By time traveling, are you interfering with God's plan? Even if we think we are stopping an evil
1: act, God has His reasons. Okay, let's let's do, let's do one that one time, first. Okay. So the answer will be no. Uh, the w- specific form of the answer will depend on what happens with time travel. Uh, either it is possible to change history or it's not. Um, you know, either you go back and there's a like, it's been called a chronology protection principle, where no matter what you do, you cannot stop John Kennedy from being assassinated. Mm-hmm. You may try to stop Lee Harvey Oswald, but you will, or whoever it was, but you will always fail. The alternative is if, is, if you are able to change history, what you're really doing, the easiest way to make sense of that in terms of physics is what you're really doing is creating a new branch in the timeline. So either, so one or the other is the likely outcome of time travel. If it's the first, then obviously you can't, you're not interfering with God's plan because you can't change what happened. On the other hand, if you create a branching timeline, which is uh, what he's asking about, then that branching timeline is also part of God's plan. It was God's plan to have one timeline where Kennedy dies, and it was God's plan to have another timeline where Kennedy doesn't die. And you simply helped actualize that second timeline. So you were part of God's plan in what you did. Because however many timelines there are, There aren't any that God doesn't include in his plan. All right. So uh, the
2: second part. If, if you were to save someone in the past, would that person in the new timeline have a different soul? They lived a longer lifetime and committed other acts, either righteous or sinful. To me, that would logically mean it's not the same soul, since we are judged by our one life. One version of the person could have gone to hell and
1: the other to heaven. So this is something I've actually thought about for more than, I don't know, more than a decade. Um, and I meant to write about it a long time ago on my blog, and I, I haven't done that to date. But. But here's the answer. So if timelines branch, then souls do too. And the question is, because you'll have two different versions, one where Kennedy get dies and one where Kennedy keeps on living and goes on to commit new acts, either righteous or unrighteous. So in both of those timelines, at some point, Kennedy is going to die and stand before God. And since both timelines are equally real, Both versions of Kennedy will be standing before God. So if timelines branch, souls branch. The question is, how do you then conceptualize this? Do you conceptualize uh, a branching? uh, uh, Do you conceptualize this such that as the soul branches, it's all still part of one thing you know, kind of like a succulent plant or something that has little different branches coming off of it, like kind of a needleless cactus or something. Um, if that's the case, then what gets judged is each little end of the cactus when or each little end of a branch where um, where the person dies and stands before God. On the other hand, you could say, well, no, this is like, a quantum phenomenon like where, say, a photon splits in two, and you now have two separate photons, um, and each one is now viewed independently, regardless of their history. But if timelines branch, souls branch. It's just a question of there. How do you uh, how do you want to conceptualize that? Do you want to conceptualize the soul as the whole thing with these different branches that? then get judged or, or, you know, and sent to heaven or hell? Or do you want to conceptualize each little branch and say, okay, that's the soul, in which case it's branch, it's judged on what it has done in its timeline? Uh, thanks very
2: much. That's defi- that definitely qualifies. Uh, that was Michelle, actually. I think I said Michael. Michelle, uh, thank you very much. And we got a whole bunch of weird questions up next. This one comes from Scooby. Given the speed of light, is Uh-oh. it... <laughs> uh given the speed of light, is it possible that a person right now on a planet 2,000 light years away and with a telescope so powerful that he could see onto the surface of the earth in great detail could watch
1: Jesus walking and teaching? Yes. Yeah, it is possible. The trick would be how do you get a telescope that big? Because... Yeah, that'd be an incredible resolution. The, yeah, because the density of the light decreases according to the cube square law, which means as you get um, further and further away from Earth, the light gets rapidly thinner and thinner. And so in order to capture enough photons to get a picture of wow. Jesus walking and talking, you're going to need, I haven't, done, I haven't done the math, but you're going to need an enormous telescope, probably one that would span light years. Yeah. and and the and so you could either build such a telescope or you could do something that not a lot of people are familiar with but you could link several different telescopes widely separated from each other and connect them together and the or coordinate the light coming okay. in from them. This is a process in astronomy known as aperture synthesis, mm-hmm. where you synthesize a new aperture from the different ones of these different telescopes. And so we can create here on Earth, Earth sized telescopes by linking satellites on op- or linking um, telescopes, some of which may be on satellites, on different sides of the Earth. So you can actually get pretty big telescopes through aperture synthesis, but somehow you're going to need to get a telescope big enough to form an image of Jesus based on the individual photons that you're receiving as they spread out over the course of 2000 years. You're also going to have to correct for things like gas and dust clouds and stars and other bodies that are in the way that can interfere with that light. Uh, A a very interesting question, Scooby Thanks uh, very, very much
2: Um, I would not recommend, however Traveling 2,000 light years away and trying it Because by the time you get there It's not going to work Patrick
0: uh, has the following question You need
1: to go maybe 4,000 light years or something But how But If you you travel there at the speed of light It would
2: take you 4,000 years to get there You could Oh no, no, that wouldn't Right Mm -hmm.
0: Wait, so we're assuming faster than light. Yeah, you
2: have to go faster than light. Yeah. Uh, Patrick uh, asks Will every curiosity or question that I have in this life have an answer in heaven? Or will the experience of sanctification or purgatory simply remove that
1: curious or questioning spirit from me? So, um, what purgatory does is free us from disordered attachments not from ordered ones. And as a result, if we have a disordered curiosity about an issue, we'll be cured of the disorder. But if we have an ordered curiosity, if it's reasonable for us to wonder about something, then we, we won't be cured of it because it's not disordered. And so we'll still have curiosities about things. And the catechism envisions us. uh, Certainly, the Christian faith does not envision us just becoming like uncurious zombies. Yeah. Um, The in, in fact, the catechism itself in the section on the problem of evil talks about how, you know, we won't know in this life what some of the answers are. So like why God allowed this particular evil or that particular evil, but it has an expectation that we will know those things in the next life. So it can be reasonable, like, Lord, why did this happen to me? Well, in the next life, the catechism would expect you to be able to find that out. Mm-hmm. And I would suspect, because, you know, we're told the next life is much better, that we're going to have an intellectual upgrade as part of the package and we'll know more rather than less, and we'll con- consequently When we learn the answers to these mysteries, we will be able to praise God even more and see how they all fit together as part of his plan. Uh, I'm guessing that that's probably
2: where you thought that was going to go, Patrick, but I don't know. I think that comes from our friend Patrick in New York, who we'll see in a few weeks at the conference. Uh, Looking forward to seeing you, Patrick. Let's go to uh, Jill. Uh, She says this, Jimmy, or she asks this. What is your take on the floating log mat model for the origin of coal beds and biogeography? Uh, As a coal miner and a Catholic, I am interested in the theory that the Great Flood caused a mass or masses of fallen logs to float about the world. But I have a hard time making the leap that this proves a young earth and our previous theories for the formation of coal seems taken millions of taking millions of years are no longer valid. On a related note, is the story of the Great Flood required to be taken literally or could it have been a regional flood that wiped out the human population but maybe did not cover the entire earth?
1: So um, let's deal with the second question first. Um, currently, uh, the answer is that the Great Flood is not required to be understood as a global flood. Even if you even if you take the flood as a literal historical event, it does not require a global flood. And as I'll discuss on an upcoming episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, we do not have good evidence of a global flood. The oh, okay. um, The the arguments that are used by young earthers are interesting, but to deal with the first question, well, it's possible that uh, that floating log mats, you know, mats made out of logs that have been knocked down, such as by a flood, mm-hmm. um, could give rise to a coal bed, given enough time. The uh, issue, though, and I would assume that that's actually happened in, you know, in history at some yeah. point that there have been some log mats. I mean, we know that happens you right. know, when there's a flood, uh, if the flood's big enough. And I would assume some of them over millions of years have turned into coal. But the problem for a young earth perspective is stratigraphy, because the layers of the of in the soil do not support the idea of a universal flood. And this was one of the findings. Now, for a time in the 1600s and 1700s, there, there was a very interesting development in science, which was called flood geology. Mm-hmm. And because they were starting to discover, they're starting to, you know, dig down and find new layers and things like that. And initially, scientists uh, experimented with this idea of flood geology. Uh, then that's the explanation for the, all the different layers we see. But what they found is that it ends up not working because the layers don't fit together the right way. I oh, got gotcha. and, um, and to keep it simple, they just, they just don't fit together the right way. And so they had to abandon that and realize that the Earth is much, much older. And that's something that I discuss in a three-part a series on Jimmy Akin's mysterious world, which um, which uh, Jill can look up, and it has an explosive finale where I I reveal why what would have happened if there was a young Earth with a global flood, and it involves lots and lots of explosions. I mean, like hyper nuclear explosions. If there had been, if Earth really was. Um, you know, just a few thousand years old, and there had been a year of a flood the way young earth creationists envisioned it, in order to account for all the rock formations, those rocks would have had to release so much radiation that the surface of the earth would have melted. And then you say, "Well, well, what if God did a miracle to keep it from melting? Well... Listen to the episodes and find out.
2: Hey, Jill, thanks uh, for that question. Thanks very much. Uh, it's Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken this hour. Uh, Mike next. Mike asks this, Jimmy, before I became Catholic, I enjoyed the show, those shows on Travel Channel like Ghost Adventures, where these paranormal investigators would lock themselves in a haunted place to try to capture evidence of the paranormal through evp that is electronic voice phenomena sessions and whatnot i don't necessarily believe it was all real or all fake for that matter either and i'm a fairly educated individual and understand the behavioral psychology of hearing voices through evp and as such am highly skeptical however these shows are very entertaining and i have to admit i enjoy them for entertainment as a catholic is it a sin to watch these shows for entertainment and uh, there's a little bit more, I would never even think of doing it myself or even put any stock in what they do. I know we are forbidden from attempting to contact the dead, but is watching these shows for entertainment per se
1: sinful? I can't find anything definitive about it. So uh, I would be a little uh, less definitive on one of the latter points you mentioned. I mean, if you're in a situation where you're forbidden to conjure up the dead, and, you know, try to summon someone who's not there. But if I was in a house and there was evidence of the house being haunted, I might say, you know, who are you? Do you, are you a soul in purgatory? Do you need prayer? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, you know. Right. You didn't conjure them up. Right. I'm yeah. not the one. They're already here. Yeah. I'm just trying to say, how are, why are they here and how do I deal with this? Um, but In terms of these shows now, he mentions electronic voice phenomena, and for people who may not be familiar, what that is, it it takes a variety of different forms, but um, sometimes people will use uh, tape recorders or voice recorders, and they'll record room tone. Uh, which is the, to determine the TV and radio industry it's yeah. you know just background sounds and then they'll they'll listen to them in a certain way they may ramp up the volume they may apply certain filters they may run it backwards um it may be like white noise that they're they're you know they're getting from a radio or something and they put it through this processing and then people will claim every so often you hear a word or a phrase yeah and the conventional explanation for electronic voice phenomena, is apophenia. Apophenia is the tendency of humans to find patterns in information yeah. where there's really not a pattern there. Like if you're they're seeing something or perceiving something that's not really there, like if you're in the jungle and you think you see a tiger lurking in the darkness of the leaves, you're safer to see, think there's a tiger there right. than to not. It's better to have a bias in one direction. Exactly. Yeah. And so apophenia is the result of this, and and I think that apophenia is likely to be at least under ordinary circumstances, it's the explanation for electronic yeah. voice phenomena. Okay. Now I haven't researched it in detail. But that's my impression at this point in time. I plan on looking more into it in the future, but I haven't at this point. So let's suppose that's all that's going on on these shows. Is it okay to watch these shows? Well, let's think about what we see on TV normally. Oh, by the way, let's think about in particular the kind of people who make these shows. I think that they could fall in one of a few categories. Okay. Number one. They're true believers and they think they're really getting this information. Yes. Number two, they're totally cynical and they're just doing it for the money and they don't believe this either. Right. And three, they're somewhere in the middle, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there's probably different individuals on these shows. Some of them may be true believers. I suspect a lot of them are totally cynical and just doing it for the money. Right. Um, but then there may be some people who are kind of unsure. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Let's think about other people we see on TV. If you tune in to a typical comedy or drama show, are those people on that show that you see playing those parts? Are they are they lying to you? They are not lying to me. Right, cuz you know that this is just fiction. Yeah. And um and so in that case, they're not lying. They're not committing a sin. You're not cooperating with the sin by watching the show. Now, let's go to a documentary. In a documentary, are those people under normal circumstances, are the people in the documentary lying to you? I uh-huh. can't speak for everyone, but let's say Richard Attenborough when you're watching a nature documentary. Oh, yeah, no they're, documentary. no, they're trying to tell you the truth. Yeah, yeah. so again, they're not lying. Then, well, what about people who are on wrestling? Uh huh. Okay. No, they're yeah, that they're wrestling. They, well, they're wrestling, but then they come out and they have these, you know, the, the faces, the good guys, and the heels, the bad guys, and right. you have face heel turns and he, heel face turns, right? And they have these story all the drama, drama of human life, all the drama yeah. of human life. So it's beautiful. So they are, in a sense putting on a show, but they're not acknowledging it like the actors on a regular show. Right. And so it's kind of in the middle. Yeah. It is, and and well, I'll actually need to finish this on the other side of the break, but it's kind of in the middle. Yeah, that's they, true. The wrestlers are not taking all the storylines seriously. They know they're fiction, but they're not acknowledging publicly that they're fiction, and so they're in this kind of interesting middle ground and part of it depends on how much the audience is aware of what's going right, on. Right. So let's talk about that more on the other side of the break.
0: We'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Ed M., Michael F., Shiloh S., Michael P., and Glenn D. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fear Vento Law PLLC. Now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com. F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O law.com, And by... Deliver Contacts offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at delivercontacts.com. So here's the deal. We
2: we have this question from uh, let me just make sure it's Mike mm-hmm. about watching shows about, like ghost shows like ghost on ghost TV. Shows. <laughs> And, and you were talking about there's different degrees of kind yeah. of fiction and line.
1: Yeah. And so the example I was exploring uh, when we had to go to the break was wrestling, because in wrestling, they have these elaborate storylines for the different wrestlers and the characters they play. And um, and they don't let on in public that these are scripted. So they're presenting it as if this is real. And there's actually a word for this in uh, in wrestling jargon. I've already used a couple of wrestling terms. Like I mentioned, faces are the good guys. That's short for baby faces yeah. because they're supposed to be cute. Yeah. And heels, you know, are, like you and me, are the bad guys. I'm,
2: I'm, I think I'm the face. Are you? Are you?
0: <laughs>
1: I'm are you, not, are I, you the I'm face of the heel? I think, <laughs> I, I think I'm a face too. Oh, but <laughs> oh, um, I'll the heel. <laughs> the uh, you know we don't have to be opposed. We could be a oh, team. You know, oh, wrestling yes. team. Yeah, we're like okay. So you have to have like all a right. face team and a heel team. But then occasionally a face will turn into a heel mm-hmm. at a dramatic moment, right. or a heel will turn into a face. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they the general term for keeping all of this secret and projecting the illusion that this is all unscripted and real is Kphabi, which is kind of wrestling pig Latin for fake. Oh. And so you you oh. don't break Kphabi oh. by revealing that this is all scripted. All right. And so well then how does what what does that do with the audience? Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of people in the audience being sober adults, Well, why even if they're even if they're not ever told it that this is all scripted, they'll figure it out on their own. You know, It's, it's like when someone's telling you a joke and initially you may not realize it's a joke. Yes. But then it becomes obvious. Right. Right. And and that's what happens with a lot of adults watching these things is they, you know. They, they watch enough wrestling and it's like, it's entertaining, but they know this isn't real. Yeah. And kids are a little bit of a different story. Kids, and I remember watching wrestling on TV, you know, back in the South when I was growing up as a kid and I didn't know it was fake. I and, didn't either. Yeah. Uh, and so um, so, you know, kids don't get this and that kind of gets you into the Santa Claus issue. Of oh, is that really what is fair it? Or, what is yeah. it OK to tell kids? It's right. so not really hurting them to think that it's it's that it's real. But then they'll grow out of it and realize, oh, yeah, that was all pretty improbable, wasn't it? Yeah. And and so that's at least the argument you would make concerning children. So what about ghost hunters on these on these shows? Yeah. And I'm not talking about serious paranormal investigators, but on these kind of ghost hunter entertainment shows my suspicion is that most of these people are in the kind of wrestler category where they know they're, they're juicing the drama and there's not really likely anything to this particular right. thing they're investigating. Um, not that I disbelieve in ghosts. I, I, I do. I, I talked about actual I cases. Yeah. I do believe in spooks. I do believe in Thank you, <laughs> Cowardly Lion. Um, but uh, don't make me send the flying monkeys at you. Uh, but... I I would think that most of the people on these ghost shows are essentially doing what wrestlers are doing, that they are Mm -hmm. doing a a piece of performance art that is where it's not openly acknowledged that this is very unlikely to be real, but they're aware of it. And a lot of the people in the audience, like Mike, are aware of it. Yeah. And so I would say, well, they're either not really trying to deceive people or if they are... That wouldn't stop me from watching it anyway, because what I'm doing is not wrong. Just watching, You're just enjoying it, the show. I'm just enjoying the show. Yeah. The situation is similar to us, to one that Paul discusses in the New Testament, in for example First Corinthians eight, where he talks about, and Romans fourteen, where he talks about idol meat. So back in his day, if you went to a meat market, say in Corinth or in Rome, to buy some meat, it had likely been sacrificed to an idol. And then they're reselling it because the God's not really going to eat the meat. And um, some people felt that they were cooperating in sin, in the sin of idolatry, by eating the meat. But Paul's point was, well, if if that's what you think, then, okay, act on that. Don't violate your conscience. But really, an idol is nothing yeah and so there yeah. is so you are not doing anything wrong if you eat the idle meat, and as long as you're aware of the fact that I'm not doing anything wrong by my actions, you could pay for the idle meat. Yeah. you could eat the idle meat. It's not a problem. And I would say the same thing is essentially happening here, even if you think that that shows like this, whether it's wrestling or ghost shows or whatever, if you even if you think that there's that the people on the screen are doing something immoral, you're not. And as long as you're clear that lying is wrong and things like that, then it's not wrong for you to watch it just as entertainment. Where it could be an issue is if you're setting an example for someone else. So for let's suppose oh, right, you've right. got a small child in the house and you're watching the ghost shows with the small child and the small child is having night terrors as a result. Well, then maybe you don't want to watch the ghost shows yeah. or you've got a child who's attributing too much significance to them then you want to make it clear that okay this, this show isn't for real maybe you want to watch it after the child's gone to bed or maybe you want to have a talk with the child to make sure they understand this isn't really real this is just for fun right. they're just pretending on, on the TV yeah. um, but as long as uh, as long as you take care of the necessary concerns like that I don't see a problem with watching them just for entertainment what about watching the TV news with people who think that it's real well, I would say the same essential principles apply, yeah. um, and I'm serious about that right. because lots of TV know news t- is totally staged. It's just silliness, a lot and of that's, it. And that's across all networks. It, yeah. it, it, I don't care what network you name, even if it's your favorite, a lot of it is staged. Yeah yeah i mean i've seen it
2: myself you know you go down to report on something and and there's a crowd of 11 people and the cameraman gets in the midst of the crowd mm-hmm. you know because you stand oh, yeah. back 10 feet and then you would oh, say there's
1: not this is not th- even worth reporting there, on but there's that famous youtube clip of uh, it's flooding here in downtown oh, yeah. wherever <laughs>
2: right and people, and, are and people are jogging people are
1: jogging behind him over the supposed yeah. flood yeah I'm, I, okay i'm glad we uh we connected on that one because <laughs> <Yeah.
2: laughs> All right, let's go to Kyle's question. Um, all right, it's a weird question with Jimmy Egan, by the way. That's why we're asking these questions. And uh, Kyle asked this. Let's say in an alternate timeline, the Left Behind fictional series centered around the end of the world and the second coming of Christ was authored by Faithful Catholics. In order to keep the series in line with church teaching, what events would need to be included, what events would need to be omitted, and what events may or may not be included as they are subject
1: to theological speculation? Well, a lot of events are subject to theological speculation. The church does not have a detailed teaching on, the after, on, on exactly what's going to happen at the end of the world. The big change that would have to occur... Is that this? The, so the Left Behind series is a is a set of books written by evangelicals, and yeah. not just any evangelicals, but specifically evangelicals who believe in a in a view called dispensationalism. And according to dispensationalism, the next major event in God's prophetic calendar is Jesus is going to come down and snatch away all of the believers, all the people who believe in Him, and that's an event called the Rapture. And then all hell's going to break loose on on Earth for a period of time, typically seven years, and the Antichrist is going to arrive, and there's going to be stuff going on with the state of Israel, and a temple will be rebuilt in Israel, and then eventually... Um, Jesus will return at the true second coming and kill the Antichrist and reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years before there's another crisis before the real end of the world. Okay. So the, the, now the left behind novels, I gather, go up to the beginning of the millennium. And then they kind of stop. At least that's my understanding, because it's kind of hard to write a thousand years with Jesus reigning in Jerusalem and stuff's great. You know, a boring Um, novel. Yeah. So um, the the in a Catholic equivalent of this, we would not be building up to the millennium. Because the millennium is occurring right now, spiritually, it there will not be, according to Catholic teaching, a after the second coming, a thousand year period where Jesus reigns on earth and they're doing animal sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem and stuff like that. So the millennium would not be the end point. Instead, the end point would be the second coming. At which um, Jesus will return and gather the people to be with Him. So that's when the rapture occurs. Is at the tr- at the true second coming, not a period of time before that. And then the uh, the dead are raised and judged, and the world ends. So that would be the terminus of a Catholic equivalent. The church then, since there's no early rapture to take the church out of the way, that means we get to live through. At a time yeah. when the Antichrist is around and causing problems, there might or might not be a new temple in Jerusalem, and the and the state of Israel may or may not be involved. All of that's open to theological speculation. The church uh, does teach that there will be a notable conversion of Jewish people to Christ before the second coming, shortly before the second coming. So that would presumably be an element in these novels, but the but it wouldn't involve the getting believers taken away at the beginning, much of the rest of it might play out the same, but it'll end with the true second coming and the resurrection of the dead rather than um, a millennium. And uh, people have written those novels.
2: Uh-huh. They're, yeah. A Catholic They're Catholic apocalypse.
1: equivalents. Um, Father Elijah, Ooh. an apocalypse. Well, I was thinking of Lord of the World. Oh, and yes. Old Lord of the, the World. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, a great
2: book. Yeah. from uh, It's so... I love Lord of the World, too, just to see... Uh, a kind of like I think it was written in 1907, a 1907 version of the future. It's yeah. kind of
1: fun to see. Oh, it. those are a lot of fun. Yeah. I've been surprised reading science fiction from that age, how they like expected us to have suicide booths all over the place. I know. It's, yeah. good. it's
2: weird. Uh, but they didn't get the jet airplane, or at least um, the writer of uh, Lord of the World didn't. Mm-hmm. The, they were uh, like really fast dirigibles. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. Uh, I think fast was 100 miles an hour, uh-huh. you know, you go all the way up to 100 miles an hour. It's impressive uh, for a Dirigible. Yeah, that is right. Uh, this next one comes from Paul and it starts with, by, by the way, if you want to write a, a, uh, a question for Weird Questions with Jimmy Akin, this first sentence is like the classic first sentence. Suppose someone became an undead vampire. That's That's the way to yeah. That's the way to
1: start a weird question. Suppose someone became I, a- I like it because it doesn't give us the prehistory of the question. It's like <laughs> no, So I was righted. laying in bed the other night and I was watching this movie and yep. I was talking with my wife and the movie happened it didn't really have vampires but it <laughs> it sort of had zombies that were kind of like vampires and so that made me wonder and then I had this dream and yep. it was like no just Suppose someone became an undead vampire. Yet
2: they still have a moral conscience and no right from wrong. The church also teaches that suicide is a mortal sin. Would it be a sin for such a person to commit suicide in order
1: to protect others from becoming vampires? OK, so in this scenario, if the vampire feeds on another person, that person becomes, becomes a, a vampire. vampire. Yeah. OK, so there are several plot twists to this question. The first one is right there in that first classic sentence. Suppose someone became an undead vampire. Well, okay. If they're an undead vampire, if they've really died, there's an argument. They're really dead. They're just an animated body walking around somehow. But they aren't a living person with a right to life. And so maybe just ending your own existence in this case would not be suicide no because you're already dead yeah um but suppose that's not the case suppose that they are a being with a right to life okay next question they have this moral conscience they know right from wrong and before we get to the point of considering suicide we want to consider, are there lesser things that they could do? Right. Are there other ways out of the situation? Like if they, <clears throat> if they need hemoglobin to survive, how about animal blood? Right. You know, maybe they could just eat a lot of blood, blood pudding or black pudding, which is a kind of blood sausage or, you know, uh, otherwise acquire animal blood mm-hmm. and take care of their need that way. In which case you don't even have to bring humans into the picture. You just get animal blood. You can get it. In, it's not used in American cuisine, but it is used in some world cuisines, and you can go to the right kind of store and get it. But let's suppose that's not the case. Let's suppose it has to be human blood. OK, something about the antigens or something. No. Well, OK, in that case, um, do you have to bite people? To get human blood. Just go to the I mean, blood bank. You could go to the blood Make bank. Make a withdrawal. You could, that's the classic joke, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember reading that in a little book of <laughs> monster cartoons when I was seven years old. Um, and And you could either use a blood bank or you could have friends or family who can serve as donors. Oh. The thing is you don't have to even, you know, so let's say it's a little hard to explain to the people at the blood bank why you need the blood. <laughs> because they're not really buying the I'm a vampire thing. <laughs> Well, right. in the, you know, you could get a private donor network. You could you could yeah. also pay people. You oh, know? Yeah. You right. Could start your own blood bank effectively, although that might get you in trouble with the health department. Um, that's the least of your problems. You're an undead vampire. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They just come over. You they come over to to investigate you. You just hypnotize them and they go away. Exactly. Um, so, uh, it, it doesn't appear that you have to bite people in order to do this, but to get to the core of the question, which is what we're doing, let's suppose you do, you know, let's suppose that you do have to bite people, the blood has to come through your fangs or whatever. Well, um, in that case, the, uh, there would be another option before suicide, starvation. Uh-huh. Because if you starve to death because you can't ethically acquire food, that is not suicide. No, you know, let's suppose I'm in the desert and I've got a uh, I've got a small child with me and there's only enough food to keep one of us alive. And I have no other sources of food. If I give the food to the child and I end up starving to death as a result because I can't ethically get food elsewhere, then I'm not committing suicide. No. And so um, so starving yourself would be an acceptable alternative to turning other people into vampires. Well, let's suppose that's not going to work because we're still edging our way towards the core of the question. I mean, I'm eliminating, I'm pointing yeah, yeah, out all right. these things here. And none of this will yeah. work. So suppose that starvation won't work because at some point I'm going to lose control of myself. It's like my vampire instincts will kick in and I will attack someone. Yeah. Okay. The next, the next strategy short of suicide would be disable yourself so that when the vampire instincts kick in, you're not able to hurt anybody. You lock yourself in a room. Maybe you put mirrors all around yourself. Oh, like or the werewolf used circle. to chain you, himself to a wall. I was gonna, wall. just going to cite that. You chain yourself to a wall. You put on a shock collar. You tranquilize yourself. Whatever you need to do, you disable yourself so that when the bloodlust comes upon you, you're not able to act on it. Right. Okay. Suppose none of that's going to work because you're, you know, you're Kronos, the original vampire, and you're just too powerful. powerful. Okay. So, there's no way to stop yourself other than dying. Well, you could ask someone else to kill you. You know, stake you. Uh Um... That, though, would be suicide because you're cooperating with it. You're willing it. It would be formal cooperation. If it's actually suicide, and here we're at the core of the question, because suicide is not just any act that results in your own death. You can legitimately do things to save other people's lives, like jump on a grenade Oh, right. Right. You know, that's yeah. not suicide. That's legitimate. If you happen to survive, you know, that would be great. Yeah. You're just foreseeing that you're not. Now, the tricky part is the fact, in this case, you would be willing your the death of your current body. Mm-hmm. But I can see a scenario where there's at least an argument that you would not that it wouldn't count as suicide as it's normally understood. Because as it's normally understood, your suicide involves killing an innocent person, someone who is not an aggressor. Mm-hmm. But if you are a person who foresees I will inevitably, uncontrollably become an aggressor, and I have no choice about that, then just like I could, like let's say. I knew that um, I knew that someone else other than me was inevitably going to launch a lethal attack. I could kill that person at least once they've launched the attack. Yeah, I could kill that person and I could take steps to launch the attack once they begin it, like I set up a shotgun trap or something. So they open the door to come into the room to get me yeah. and the shotgun will take them out. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's legitimate. I'm killing a person who is at the moment an aggressor, and this is the only or best way to stop them. Well, what if I foresee I will inevitably become that person? Right. It seems to me there's an argument that it would not be suicide, but would be legitimate defense of others for me to do the same thing. So that I say, set up the shotgun trap so that when I open the door to go out and start feeding on people, I will be blown away and thus will protect others. And that would not arguably have the moral character... Of suicide, it would instead have the moral character of stopping an aggressor, because in the moment I'm killed, I would actually be an aggressor. Uh, I think the
2: the obvious, easy solution is don't become an undead vampire. I mean, start there. Hey, I got to roll you. with the premises. I'm <laughs> yeah, giving. exactly right. Uh, a different Paul asks this. Thank you, Paul, for that question, and thank you for the uh, the the uh, excellent opening sentence. How would you reconcile Earth's liturgical calendar with planets that have no that have longer or shorter solar years. Can you have Easter twice in one year? Could you have a year without Christmas?
1: So I think that this the answer to this is going to be upon us very quickly. Yeah, because be, people are going to be living on other planets. Uh, exactly. And as long as the people are living in the solar system, my sense is they're going to keep the uh, their calendars tied to the calendar of Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there may be some a little bit of adjustment in particular in the case of Mars, because Mars's day is not exactly what an Earth day is, but it's close enough. Know. You could do a little fudging yeah. to, to, to get, keep them in sync. So you might have a little variation, but in terms of the big holidays like Easter and Christmas, people are, on Mars are going to be celebrating that at the same time people are celebrating it on Earth. Right. Anywhere in the solar, like they do on the International Space Station. You know, yeah, they're not on Earth, but they celebrate Christmas at the time people on Earth are. Same thing is going to happen all the way through the solar system. And that means that if we have people on some planets, you will have years where there are either multiple Christmases and Easter's or no or not a Christmas and Easter on Mercury. For example, Mercury is close to the sun, it orbits the sun every 88 days, and that means on in a in a given year for Mercury because the mercurian years are so short, you probably will not have a Christmas or Easter. It will take you'll still have one every 365 Earth days. Right. But in but Mar- Merc- in, in mercurian years, uh, that'll be every 4 to 5 years. Yeah. yeah. Every four to five Mercury years you'll have a Christmas or an Easter. Mars, on the other hand. Now Mars has a has an orbit of six hundred and eighty-seven days, which is almost two Earth years. Mm-hmm. So every three hundred and sixty-five Earth days, you'll have a Christmas and Easter, but in Mars years, you will sometimes have one Christmas and Easter in a Mars year, but sometimes you will have two Christmas and Easters in a Mars year. When it comes to Jupiter, it's got a 12 year orbit. You're going to have 12, 12 Christmases years. and Easters every year. Yeah. Saturn, you're going to have 60. And so, um, so it'll, but I think as long as we're in the solar system, we're basically going to be using Earth's liturgical calendar with some adjustments, like in the case of Mars, where the day is so close to Earth's. Yeah. Um, If we get out of the solar system and we're dealing with very distant places, I suspect that they will develop their own liturgical calendars based around the orbits of their planets. But there will probably be some attempt to keep Christmas and Easter universal for everybody. Hey, uh, thanks, uh, Second Paul, for that
2: uh, question. That was a great one. Thanks, Jimmy, for two very fine hours. My pleasure. I, th- I, I, I leave this with my conviction that you should not become an undead vampire Strengthen. I will
0: endeavor not
2: to. <laughs> okay, very, very good.
0: So those were some great weird questions. And that's it from us this time. What are your theories about these listeners' weird questions? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Aikens Mysterious World Facebook page sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, in the Starquest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515.
1: And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they did on this episode. You can see the work that they do by going to my uh, YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And I am trying to grow my channel. Uh, I'm trying to get up right now to 40,000 subscribers. So I'd really appreciate it if you would uh, take a moment and subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification. Whenever I release a video, whether it's Mysterious World or one of the other videos I do. Jimmy, what are we going to be talking about next time? Next week, we're going back in time uh, to Texas in the year 1980. We're going to be talking about a famous event that occurred there known as the Cash Landrum UFO encounter, in which three people encountered a UFO that had documented physical effects on the people. So this is a physical evidence case, and it's well documented. You won't want to miss it. Folks, be sure
0: to check out the Mysterious World bookstore at mysteriousworldstore.com for links to all the books and videos that Jimmy mentions in the show. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 253. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willett. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by Tim Shevlin's Personal Fitness Training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness through personalized nutrition, workout and prayer programs, and daily accountability check-ins. Learn more by visiting Cat. Fitca- com. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash secrets.